Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hi, everybody. It's Wednesday, and that means we're right here with you for Friends in Fiction. We have an amazing uh, evening ahead of us, and since Christy and Patty are taking a little short vacay. We've been, we're excited to have a couple of stands, stand-ins, and these faces should be familiar. Um, by the way, I'm my face should be familiar, too. I'm Mary Kay Andrews. <laughs> Hi, I'm Kristen Harmel. And I'm Meg Walker, the Managing Director of Friends in Fiction. And I am Ron Block, the host of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. And also a rock star librarian coming to us live from Yay. Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland Woo! Rocks. Cleveland Rocks. <laughs> this is Friends and Fiction for New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, and librarians. Ron, tonight we're talking with Julie Clark and Erica Ferencik and Karen Cleveland will join us for afterwards. And we can't wait to start talking to you about these intriguing authors and their books. But first, we have to take time to congratulate our girl, Mary Alice Monroe and her co-author, yeah. Angela May. We just yeah. found out the hit number three on the New York Times children's book bestseller list for their new middle grade novel, Search for Treasure. Oh, we're so excited. And yes. speaking of books, I know it's so great for them. And speaking it. of books we're excited about, we're so grateful for your over-the-top amazing response to our new behind the book partnership with our friends at Fable, a free app for your phone or tablet with loads of incredible book clubs to join. If you haven't joined our premium club there, it is full of behind the scenes info you will not get anywhere else. It's $5 a month, or there are annual membership options too that allow you access to all of the premium clubs. So visit fable.co friends and fiction to sign up today. We will be announcing our switch to a brand new book next week, which we're excited about. But in the meantime, you still have time to jump into the conversation about Mary Kay's The Homewreckers. And I swear there's a bomb that's about to go off. <laughs> it's because it's thriller night, you guys. That's right. <laughs> I don't know. What I don't know. It sounds like it's coming from my house. It's coming from inside the house. Inside the house. <laughs> look, look at us setting the stage with sound effects for tonight. Yeah. And we're just going That's the right. extra mile. Oh. Well, and you've heard that the whole Friends and Fiction gang are on the road together, right? We have a doubleheader in July on the Delaware shore. First, we have an evening ticketed event on Wednesday, July 20th with Bethany Beach Books. And then a ticketed luncheon event on Thursday, July 21st with Browse About Books at the Rehoboth Country Club in Rehoboth Beach. We hope you can join us for the big Friends in Fiction Lodge celebration. We are so excited for the opportunity to see so many of you in person. Um, you can find the link under pin posts on the Facebook page or on either the Bethany Beach Books and Browse About Books websites. 
That's great. And don't forget, as you know, we continue to encourage you all to support independent booksellers when and where you can. And one way to do that is to visit our own friendsinfictionbookshop.org page, where you can find Julie's books, Erica's books, and Karen's books, and books by the Fab Four and all of our past guests at a discount. Also, each week, we're going to give you a chance out there to ask us anything. If you have a question you'd like the four of us to answer or a topic you want us to discuss, we are all ears. In fact, feel free to drop the questions in the comments now for future weeks. We want to hear from you. And, you know, we got, we've gotten so many great questions. I had a hard time choosing one this week, but this one seemed fun. Arlene Sachs Wilder wants to know if you could live anywhere in the world other than where you live right now. Where would you go? Meg, you're first up. Well, other than where I live right now, then I would just say, I would say Hawaii. Um, Dave and I went to Hawaii on our honeymoon and we're dying to go back sometime. That's, that was a long time ago, by the way. <laughs> uh, that was not a recent trip. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's the North Shore of Oahu where the big surfing beaches are. There's amazing food. And we always dreamed of like getting a little shack on the beach and just chilling out. So... That's, That's right. Awesome. Okay, Kristen, nice. what about, I already, we already know what you're going to say, but go ahead and say yeah, it. Yeah, what do you think? It's Paris, obviously it's Paris. I mean, I keep returning to it in my fiction, even when I say, you know, maybe I should write about somewhere else. I write about somewhere else. And then with the next book, I always come back to Paris. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was an easy one. <laughs> How about you, okay. Ron? Ron? Well, I'm, I don't ever like to be too far away from Kristen. So I am just <laughs> dreaming about Bilbao, Spain, which is like 75 miles from the wow. French border. And they're just um, they're just up and coming with an arts community. And they have a, a Guggenheim Museum there. And the food is fantastic. It's not far from San Sebastian, just centrally located to anywhere. I'm ready to go. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's we can perfect. visit each other by train, Ron. That's right. I love that's right. it. In the middle. It's like a, a travelogue tonight. You know, I've only been to Tuscany once, but it made such an impression on us. The food, the wine, the people, the wine, the pasta. Um, maybe I would, you know, move it over to the uh, Amalfi Coast, though, Ooh. and I could have that yes. gorgeous sparkling turquoise yeah. water. Yes, okay, yes. enough about where we want to live. <laughs> Let's welcome our guests for the evening, Julie Clark and Erica Ferencic. And we're going to start with Julie because we're doing alphabetical order. And Julie's a school teacher, so I think that's appropriate. Her <laughs> new book, The Lies I Tell, yeah, yeah, just I love that released yesterday. She is the New York Times bestselling author of The Last Flight and The Ones We Choose. Her novel, The Last Flight, earned starred reviews from Kirkus Publishers Weekly and Library Journal. Additionally, her debut novel, The Ones We Choose, which was published in 2018, has been optioned for television by Lionsgate. Julie lives in Los Angeles with her two sons and a golden doodle with poor impulse control. <laughs> <laughs> I want video. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we already know her new novel, The Lies I Tell, was just released yesterday. This book snagged my attention with the first sentence, and I could not put it down until the last page. And I think that uh, Julie's going to owe me some sleep hours for this. <laughs> anyway, Alan, can you bring Julie on? Hello. Hi, Hi Julie. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's our entire pleasure. First, we would love it if you would tell us, give us the elevator picture about the lies I tell. What's All it right. about? 
So The Lies I Tell is a story of Meg Williams, a female con artist who travels the country under assumed names, creating elaborate backstories to back up whatever lies she's telling. And she's been traveling around doing these cons for probably 10 years with a sole purpose of building her skill set so that she can come back to Los Angeles and con the man who she believes destroyed her life 10 years ago. But what she doesn't know is that there's a woman in Los Angeles who's waiting for her to return, an investigative reporter named Kat Roberts. And Kat was collateral damage on a con that Meg pulled a long time ago. And Kat has been waiting to get her revenge. And so it's a story of justice and revenge. It's cat and mouse. You're not really sure who's the cat, who's the mouse. Um, but hopefully, hopefully, um, by the time you finish it, you'll know. Ooh, I love that. Okay. So Julie, your book has dual points of view. You were just telling mm -hmm. us about Meg and Kat. Mm -hmm. I'm always interested in character arcs though, because I think that especially in books like this that are so driven by those characters and by the journey the characters are on, the arc that they take in terms of who they develop into is so interesting. So can you talk to us a little bit about how these women change over the course of the book and how that impacts the plot? I can a little bit, but I don't want to tell too much. Without spoilers, spoilers. yes. <laughs> but I will say that one of the things that's really important to me that I kind of carried over, my first book was a women's fiction book and then I jumped into the thriller lane. But I kind of carried from the women's fiction lane that idea that that there needs to be an emotional arc and not just a plot arc. Yep. That's really, really important to me. And you get that emotional arc by getting your characters to change and grow and learn something. And I always, always, always start with what does my character want? Yeah. And then I stop and think, okay, then what does my character need? And that is always, always two different things. They need to be in conflict. Uh... And so that's where, where the where their want and the need comes into conflict. That's that's where the story lives, I think. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's beautifully said. Yeah. Um, well, I read that your decision to create Mag was born from your fascination with true crime podcasts. And I mean, who isn't fascinated with true crime? Right. And who isn't? Especially yeah. on our stories at the moment. Yeah. I, mean, um, I devoured Inventing Anna as the half the world and the Tinder right. and then I also wrote a really good audible right. original I don't know if you've listened to it called um, the Miranda Obsession about a female mm -hmm. con artist no um, and I thought I did all the research on female oh, con artists the Miranda Obsession uh -huh. and it, um, it was produced and, and starring um, the woman's whose name I can't remember who plays the marvelous Miss Maisel Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Rachel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She does the voice of Miranda, but this woman cons like all these famous um, rock stars and movie moguls and stuff. It's a true story based on this woman in the 1980s. Wow. Anyway, so I'd love to hear your take on why are we all so obsessed, not only with true crime, but specifically with con artists? Like, what draws us to these stories, do you think? I don't know. I mean, I am always really interested to, to approach it from, well, how did they how did they, um, how do people fall for it, right? And so I did some research into kind of the psychology of con artists. And I actually read this really helpful book called The Confidence Game by Maria Konnikova. And it's all about the psychology of how con artists work and how do they, 
it's why we, the, the subtitle is why we fall for it every time. And sorry, why we fall for it every time. And so I feel like that's important for my book because I wanted to have two con artists who were very much um, trying to infiltrate people's lives, but not in a way, not in a way that's like overt and hard hitting, right? And so Meg, my main character, she uses social media a lot to sort of yes i do oh sorry you're not talking about me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no no miranda no no <laughs> and she she finds her targets through social media but she doesn't target just anybody i mean meg meg is the kind of character who's doing the wrong thing for the right reasons and that mm -hmm. is really important to me um i love those characters that live in that morally gray area yeah. and i I wanted to write somebody that lived there. So I wanted the reader to be feeling like Meg is doing the wrong thing. And yet we understand why she's doing it. And it kind of goes back to Kristen's question about character is that if you understand sort of where people have come from and what their, their background is, then you have a better understanding of why they're making the choices they're making. Even if they're making really bad choices, you yeah. understand it and you're like, well, I, I wouldn't do it myself, but I'm kind of glad she is because I'd like to see how this works out, you know? <laughs> um, and so, and so I think with con artists in particular, they're really fun to write because they're very enigmatic and, and engaging and dynamic and everybody who spends time around a con artist get sucked into it. And so my main character, Kat, even though she knows who Meg is, she knows what Meg does. She does not sure what Meg is doing right now, but she knows that Meg is a con artist. She finds herself falling under Meg's spell as well at times. She has to catch herself and remind herself she loves Meg's stories and the way that Meg tells things that happen. And Kat's like, she knows that they're all lies. She knows that none of it is true. And yet she still finds her completely engaging and that was really really fun to write i bet yeah. i bet so, yeah i mean so part of what she's so compelling she's so compelling because she's i mean i don't want to give too much away but she um <laughs> you know um it, these people are bad that she's going after and um you you end up even though she's she's a bad guy too you really do root for her yeah. in a way yes and you know because she's she does target very specific types of people. She's not somebody that's going to take, you know, the little old lady at the grocery store and, you know, move in and, and squat at her house and then you can't get her out, right? Like that's not, those are not the people that make targets. Make targets, uh, powerful men and generally corrupt men. And so she feels that, um, you know, it sort of balances the scales a little bit in the universe, you know? Yeah, vigilante justice, kind of. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about it, Kathy. Yeah. You do, um, Mary Kay, and you're <laughs> in the video that you made about the book. You called it Robin Hood Justice. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Robin. Yeah. Um, I and you know one of the thing I I like about it is I can see readers saying to themselves, "I could be that smart," or "No, no, I totally could not." <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But let's talk about Kat, the reporter. You know, I'm a washed up newspaper reporter and Kristen is too. I love Kat's grit, but what I loved even better was her vulnerability. Yeah. And um, and you peeled those layers back so beautifully um, that I knew that at the core, 
there was a crack. But I was wondering what made you decide to make Scott her seemingly good guy. Don't spoil it. Okay. <laughs> okay. How how am I gonna parse this question? I think that I think you want to talk about Scott. So I'm gonna interrupt. Let's talk you. about Scott. Yeah. <laughs> Scott is Scott, you know, and she's very open about her relationship with Scott. Scott's a good guy and he's, right. he's a police officer. He's actually a fraud detective and he, um, and he knows a lot about the world in which Meg moves. And so he offers Kat a lot of advice about how to, you know, what she needs to be careful of. He tells her, you know, you need to lock this down. You need to lock that down. Um, and he's really helpful, but he also has a gambling addiction and he's in recovery and Scott, you know, Scott's a flawed person and a flawed character, but he's a good, he's a good man. And so, um, Kat really, Kat really starts to struggle because Scott, as a lot of men do, um, Scott thinks that he knows more than Kat about this because it's his area of expertise. It's his, it's his strength. This is what he knows. And yet Kat's the one spending day in and day out with Meg. And so again, it's that, it's that, you know, there's a little bit of a little bit of mansplaining going on there where, you know, Kat wants to say like, you know, I, I do have instincts of my own. I do, I do have a good gut sense of like who this woman is and what she's doing. The reader may or may not agree with Kat's instincts though. And I think that, you know, it, it's also a commentary, I think, on women and our instincts and how often we're told to ignore them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, I thought those were such interesting choices that you made mm -hmm. and that you, um, that you colored Scott um, in tones of, of gray. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, I think all of us are colored in tones of gray, right? Like I'm in, I'm in tones of blue. I'm a, I like blue. The point of a novel is entering right. at the moment when stuff right. happen, you yeah. know, when people are not being their best selves, they're not making their best choices. Um, you know, there is no interesting novel about my life where everything is going well you know? And so I think that we have all had those periods in our life where things are not going well, or we are dating the wrong guy, or we are married to the wrong guy, or we're doing things that we are not really proud of. Yeah. And like, that's the entry point of a novel, you know, that's where you start. Yeah. Wow. Oh, Good I stuff. Love it. I love it. Good stuff is right. So you talked a little bit about your research in learning about the art of the con, um, but I was intrigued by all of the things that, uh, all the skills that Meg possessed. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I won't go into what they are because you learn about them in the in the book. Um, but did researching all of that and kind of getting into her head, did that make you more weary of people around oh, you? I'm super paranoid, like by nature. <laughs> I'm a very paranoid person. I have had this friend request sitting in my inbox for probably three months now. And I keep asking other friends, like, who is this person? Who is this person? We have mutual friends and I, I won't, I won't accept it. Like, I don't know who this person is. I'm I'll delete it. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll delete I'm, it. <laughs> I'm very paranoid oh, about that. It's Keanu Reeves. Ron, it's not you. It's Keanu Reeves. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> not yeah sadly no um but but yeah i'm a very very paranoid person and you know i play this game with my son all the time we're driving around 
in, you know, traffic, we're sitting in traffic and, you know, I look at the car next to us and I'm like, what do you think she's got in her trunk? You know, and, <laughs> I love it. Oh, and, and you know, we, we see the same runner every day. Um, when we're on our way to school and we've named her, her name is Shannon. She has orange shoes. Um, she has a job. She's got a dog, you know, like we just, <laughs> I just, it's just the way it's the way my brain works, you know? Yeah. I, uh, um, my husband went out fishing with a, um, fishing guide down in Apalachicola this Friday and he found somebody referred the guy to him and he talked to him on the phone, but he never met him. And so I drove him to the Marina to get picked up and I walked out and I'm like, I need to talk to you. I need to see you. I need to take a picture of your boat uh, with a reservation <laughs> because if he doesn't come back, I need to know. And the guy looks at me and goes, lady, I want to come back as bad as he does. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what, 30 years of writing about murder will do for you. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Exactly. <laughs> oh my God. How do we, how do you both sleep at night? Then I would be like freaking out. My brain off friends reruns. Oh <laughs> yes. Some of the Actually, detail you wrote into the book about um, some of the real estate cons. I was thinking like, this is my worst nightmare. Like, yeah. <laughs> If it's an area you're not savvy about, like I, yeah. I would, I would never in a million years dream there was a way to set up like a fake escrow account, and that you were, I mean, so how did you, how did you research all that? Do you have any expertise in that area, or did you have very to? carefully, very carefully? I come from a real estate family. My mom sold real estate for a very long time, so I kind of grew up with the terminology and understanding how transactions work and what escrow is and how escrow is paid. I mean, here in California, I think it's different in every state, right? Like yeah. here in California, yeah. you don't need an attorney to be buying and selling real estate, but I know in other states, you need to have a real estate attorney as a part of the transaction. So it's one of the reasons why I said it here in Los Angeles, because I was very, very comfortable with how it works here in LA. Yeah. Um, I have a good friend who's a current real estate agent now. And so she read the book and I ran everything by her, you know, and a lot of it too is just creating the characters that you need to be in that situation. And so, so Meg is working with a very specific demographic and the demographic that she's working with, which is very typical here in Los Angeles are high high-end buyers and these are you know we're talking celebrities we're talking very 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 wealthy people entertainment industry people yeah. who aren't necessarily engaged in the app zillow right like they don't know yeah. what Zillow is and you know they have that's what they have an agent for you know the yeah, agent right. is the one that tells them what properties are priced at mm. and so when you have a situation like that you can there's a lot of, there is a lot of, I think in anything, actually, not just in real estate, in anything, when you abdicate your control to somebody mm -hmm. else, whether it's your real estate agent or your accountant or your yep. business manager, when you abdicate yes. that control, there's all kinds of funny business that can go on. Oh my there gosh. Really and is. now I'm not going to sleep at night. <laughs> thinking about that. <laughs> well, I, I, um, authenticity praise. Uh, my husband is a realtor and, um, and you had it just right. Cause in Ohio here, we don't need an attorney either, yeah. but I sat down afterwards. I went, okay, I got to figure it out. Here's how we're going to make money. I just read this book. <laughs> and <there's> the, <laughs> I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have fake escrow accounts. And <laughs> oh my Ron will be moving to Bilbao. Bel How do I say it? Yeah, I'll be there. I'll be there real soon. How do you think we can afford that house in Spain? 
<laughs> exactly. That's but right. Ron, I'm just checking. You do realize this isn't a private chat, right? You just announced your attention intentions. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All right, Julie, before we let you go, we would love it if you could share a writing tip with us, especially since you're a school teacher. We know uh teach us <laughs> teach us tonight. I'm good. I, I've been giving this one out left and right, and I couldn't remember who said it, but I finally found the book where I found it. So I found this writing advice in this book called The Scene Book by Sandra Schofield. And I bought this when I first started writing, like when I first started really writing seriously for publication. And in the introduction, she had this advice for, for aspiring writers. She said, basically, in order in order to do this job, you have to do two things. Number one, you have to think of yourself as a worker. And number two, you have to show up at the job. And that's it. That's all you have to do. Think of yourself as a worker and show up at the job every day. I love that. That's brilliant. Mm -hmm. I thought so. It was on my computer for the entire, you know, that's for the awesome. entirety of, of you know. It, Everybody it, out there, put on your yoga pants and get busy. Yeah. yeah. Has, <laughs> yeah. But, but Julie, you actually have a, a full-time job. So yeah. what's great. I teach fifth grade, and so I wake up very, very early in the morning and write from about three forty-five to six, and oh. then oh. and then I get my kids up and we are off to school, and you know, and then and then I, I get really resentful when I have writing work to do in the afternoon. It feels like homework, <laughs> right? Like, you know. So I try I try to get everything done in the morning, and that's my writing yeah. time, and I feel like that's my best time. Nobody yeah. wants anything from me. Nobody's interrupting me. Nobody needs anything. Um, and I think that the best words come for me at that time of day. Uh, my brain is a little bit softer. I can be a little bit more relaxed about it. Um, and, and I also believe that, you know, not writing every day, you know, or writing about my writing, but not writing my writing is also an important kind of tool in my toolbox to kind of keep my brain loose and flowing, you know? Yes. Yeah, those are all great tips. Love Julie, that. we hate to let you go because there's so much more we want to ask you. <laughs> Thank um, you. But maybe our viewers will leave questions on the Friends in Fiction page. And we would love it if you have time, come back and answer some of those questions. I would be happy to. Thanks so much. That would be great. Thanks for having me tonight. Great Thank you. Please accept my friend request. <laughs> <laughs> She's already out. She she knows you're gonna con her run. She knew it. Here are she you. Yeah. She has an airport run to make. All right. <laughs> hope everyone will check Julie out online. She's going on a big tour and she's got lots yeah. of dates. Yes. Check her website. And right. And it's her book. and her and it's her pub week. It's the most important yeah. week in the life of a book for any author. The most important week is that first week. So get that book. All right. Now let's introduce our second guest for the night, Erica Ferencik. So Erica Forensic is an award-winning yeah. author of adventure novels, which feature women who brave not only internal struggles, but also face challenges in their environment, such as remote forests, which does that sound familiar, right? No, <laughs> I, I, I like writing about remote forests too. Steaming jungles, which I have not written about, and de desolate ice scapes. Ooh. Ooh, that's right. Well, Erica has been writing for 35 years with her uh, work taking the forms of novels, short stories, essays, ghostwriting, and 10 years of stand-up and sketch comedy. Awesome. I, I love this whole combination, yeah. as well as dozens of screenplays and some filmmaking. To research her novels, including The River at Night and Into the Jungle, Erica has ventured deep into the remote forest of the Allagash Territory in northern Maine. She's rafted the Amazon River in the jungles of Peru, 
and explored the desolate fjords of Greenland. Wow. I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> All that rowing. <laughs> Erica's new thriller, Girl and Ice, was released early this year in March. Erica, welcome. Yay. Thank you. Thank you so much. You think you're tired. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm exhausted. I bet. I bet. I bet well, you are. I mean, first of all, this cover. Uh, I was telling you earlier, you know, it's 98 degrees in Atlanta where I live, and I just feel like I could put this, like, to my forehead and cool down. So, <laughs> I highly recommend that. <laughs> thank you so much for that. Okay, lots of questions, but first, would you give us the elevator pitch or the summary of what the book is about? Of course, of course. So, um, whew, Girl and Ice. Girl and Ice. Um is about an American linguist named Val, who is tasked to go to an extremely remote climate research center off the coast of Greenland, where a girl has been found in a glacier. She's thawed out alive, speaking a language no one understands. Um, six months before the novel begins, Val's twin brother, Andy, who was a climate scientist at this very remote climate research center, ventures out 50 degrees below zero and freezes to death. Now, Val is incredibly upset and, and, and grief stricken, but she doesn't know if he has, if Andy's taken his own life or there was, if there was foul play up north. Um, and the story begins when Val, the linguist, gets an email from another guy, another climate scientist, who was up there in this very remote location, Wyatt, to her telling her about this girl, telling her, we found this girl, she's thought out alive, we don't know how, we don't know why, and, and you, being the, the specialist in dead Nordic languages, have to come up here and tell us what she's saying. Now, Val has her own anxieties. Uh, she has a pretty severe anxiety disorder. In fact, she only feels comfortable in a few places in her life. So at first she says no, but there's a little clip of the girl speaking in this email. She plays it and she hears this girl's voice. She doesn't understand a word, the girl says, but she hears fear and terror and uh, just uh, please help me in this voice. And so Val has to step out of her comfort zone, or she doesn't have to, but she steps out of her comfort zone and she does venture to Greenland to not only try to understand this girl, but also what happened to her brother. So she steps into another world in order to do that. Ugh. Yeah, you know, Valerie, your protagonist of Girl in Ice, as yeah. you mentioned, she suffers from really crippling anxiety. Yeah. She, and she's literally stuck in ice almost in a <laughs> suffocating world of her own making. Right. Now, my question is, how is someone like you, you seem to be fearless about your travel. I mean, I'm reading about you being in the Amazon with <laughs> anacondas like <laughs> drinking over to my hair. <laughs> oh. yeah. So how, I mean, you seem to be pretty fearless on paper. How does someone like you understand someone like Val? And how do, we talked earlier with Julie about character arc and how that changes over the course of the plot. Well, I think we're all pretty terrified. I know I am. I mean, I wake up 
scared every morning. Am I going to be able to do all the things I need to do? Am I going to be able to write when I need to write or, or, or things like that? Um, you know, I think as, as authors, we, we take little parts of ourselves that, that exist um, in some form and, you know, amplify them or tweak them in a way so that we can find, find the character that we're trying to create. Um, I, I'm not that fearful of a person. That said, I was, <laughs> that's a lie. I was terrified, <laughs> lying, lying, lying. Uh, I was terrified before I went to the Amazon because, wow. I mean, have you read about what can kill you? Yes, I would I mean, be terrified too, you. yes. The plants want to kill you, the insects want to kill yeah. you. Everything wants to kill you and eat you. I mean, you, and so, you know, for all my books, I read so much about, I must have read, you know, 25 books about the Amazon. Um, terrifying myself, you know, uh, <laughs> The River of Doubt by Candace Millard. I mean, just, they'll just cur curl your hair. So I was like, I almost didn't get on the plane. And <laughs> and, I mean, and, I, and I think fear is really fascinating. Um, I mean, I had to break down my fear. I had to say, okay, what? What's the first step? Okay, the first step is you're gonna fly to Miami. What could happen? <laughs> fly to Miami. Okay, check. You know, the next one is you know fly to Lima, Peru. Okay, you know, and so I had to like take it like that. Yeah. And I also had to think, okay, well, you know, not everyone is dead in Peru, Erica. You know, <laughs> it's not like you know they're all dead, and and so. <laughs> So you're but you are entering another society. The same was yeah. true for the Arctic. I was entering another world, and they, yeah. what I had to do to survive, you know, that my what I had to do to survive my research was understand the world that I was entering and how to survive that. And um, I mean, I guess quickly, you know, for the jungle, uh, I was walking with my guide, and it was the first couple days that I was with him, and. I was talking, talking, talking as I talk a lot, you know, and I was talking loud like an American because we talk loud and we were in the jungle, you know, and then um, I was keeping back from him a little bit. And he, and he came up to me, native Peruvian guy, sweetheart. He's like, Erica, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he didn't really know how to say it nicely. So I said, what? <laughs> you buddy no i didn't say that. And, uh, and he said i said why and he said because i'm listening and i said well what what are you listening for and he said well i mean you know this guy could hear herds of monkeys from two miles away you know what kind they were he knew how many they were you know fast wow. they were coming toward us um he could hear with his feet he knew there's a certain kind of uh, peccary, it's kind of pig that travels in herds and they're quite vicious um, and they come quite quickly and and one day he he said, okay, we need to find shelter immediately because he had heard with his feet this herd of peccary coming. Wow. So we had to take wow. shelter. Uh, there are these massive trees, they're called lupuna trees. Uh, they're 20 feet, they're, they're 40 feet around, so I was like, why do we have to do that? We did that and we, we hid in one of these massive root systems. And so this herd of peccary just flowed around us. 
Oh my um, gosh. And so I guess what I'm talking about with fear, I think we all have to deal with fear every day. And I think it's really instructive. What I've learned about fear is um, it's really good to analyze it and ask yourself, what am I really afraid of? Yeah. You know, what am I, what am I really afraid of instead of this yeah. general anxiety that we, we I, I just think that that's instructive. So I kind of learned that about fear and dealing with my own fear but specifically for val for girl and ice um i needed to i wanted her to have a certain kind of anxiety not agoraphobic per se but really fearful of stepping out of her comfort zone so that was a really long answer to your great question. answer are you kidding no I one's ever it. talked to that was amazing yeah <laughs> So now I'm tired and I'm terrified of going. Now out. you're tired and yes. yes. no, that's I'm what never I'm going like. anywhere. That's my gift. Exhausting. <laughs> yeah, terrifying. Yeah. And do you feel like a low level sense of dread all the time? Good. <laughs> oh, that'll come. That'll come. Yeah. I didn't even know. Yeah. Please. That's when I mean, you hang up later. You're like, why do I feel like so weird? Yeah. <laughs> we've all peccary, it's coming yeah. my way. Yeah, we've <laughs> all crossed Peru, the jungles, off the yeah. list of where we would like to be. Yes. Yes, Definitely off the list. Tuscany, 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 where maybe wine could kill you. Hawaii and Balboa, Balboa's been, yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, so about, about your research, so what has been the scariest thing that you've experienced in your travels? And and what what methods did you use to sort of overcome those fears? Because you, you have really done some hugely adventurous things to research yeah. your writing. There are a lot of well, I, did, I just, you know, I, I think I really did use the, that concept of like, um, let's parse it. Let's yeah. parse, you know, what really happened or what's what. So I did a lot of, let's put it this way. I did a lot of looking at my guides to see their spatial expressions and to um, sort of gauge what was going on but by their level of terror and their faith. <laughs> I mean, you know, the only time I saw my, my Peruvian guide frightened, it was like during this, it was during a night canoe ride through the floating forest, which is like this terrifying place <laughs> um, where, you know, this, so, you know, I don't know if you know this, but um, in South America and the Amazon, the river rises um, 40 feet every wow. year. No, I and know. so everything is built on stilts. And it's very bizarre. So the Amazon River is the, one of the longest rivers in the world. It might be the longest. It's 4,000 miles. And it's this massive river. And it rises. And everyone goes from, from living on land, like we all live on land, to going to each other's houses via boat um, and fishing from your window. And one year, um, the, the river rose because of climate change, it rose another five feet. And so there were, you know, these snakes washing into these people's houses and all this other stuff. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. I wasn't there for that, but I was here there for, go, for going in this canoe through the floating forest and nighttime, all we had was this light, the headlight and this electric eel, like jaunt out of the water. Electric eel can stun a horse. It will kill you. It's you know, it was like, it looks like it was like this giant tire jumped out of the water and like oh. twisted around and fell. And that was the only time I saw on my guide's face, just this 
flicker of like, what the <laughs> F was that? Like, oh my God. He's like, but I didn't get a picture of that. The only, and, the, and you know, for Girl and Ice, I should probably. So we were in, okay, let's switch to Greenland. We were in Greenland and uh, and we were in this fjord. All a fjord is, it is just a um, an inlet with extremely deep, uh, it's very, very deep, very, very cold. And there was this one fjord called the Iceberg Graveyard. And it was so cold because for whatever reason, the, the ocean currents washed in these massive, massive icebergs. And, you know, I'm talking 10 stories, you know, 20 blo city blocks long. So we were in there with our kayaks and all the time we heard the, the, the icebergs cracking and breaking and like gunshots going off. So I asked, I asked the guide, like, what would happen if one broke, <laughs> you know, because, and he said, well, you know, what you need to do if you hear something break is turn your kayak toward the sound because a massive wave will be created and it will flip your little kayak in 30 degree water. And he said, he, he didn't say you're going to live. <laughs> Turn your kayak toward the sound, and um, yeah. So that was that was frightening, but it's really oh interesting. When I know, I'm sure you've experienced. Maybe you haven't. I don't know. But have you ever been in a quote frightening situation, and you just kind of you're so in it, and you don't feel the fear yeah. at the time. You just feel very aware. You know, you almost have yeah. this third eye that opens, like you're going down a scary alley, right? Or you're. You're even, maybe even you're writing a scene that's frightening you. You're so into it, right? Yeah, like right. you almost feel your your third eye opening up and, and looking out for you. Yeah. So that's yeah. kind of what happened in the jungle. I learned to shut up, you know, and listen. <laughs> and I just want to be quiet and let the guy who can hear through his feet do all this. <laughs> yeah, you do all of it. You just let yeah. me know. And like, you, you do that. You yeah, do that. you go ahead and listen for the... Peccary. The, the white peccary that are going to just, they're so, yeah, they're so dumb. Oh, they just over you. Anyway. Oh my gosh. Okay. So Erica, I am curious. Um, this is such an astonishing idea for a novel. I mean, the girl in ice in the title is literally a girl from an unknown tribe found frozen, but alive. Right. Right. So how did this idea come to you? And and how did you decide to make what many would regard as sort of a quantum leap into speculative fiction? I, I mean, it's such a different kind of book. Um, I'd just love yeah. to hear about how you came up with the idea. Well, I'm totally a whack job. That's the first answer to the question. <laughs> <laughs> what? What are you going to write about? Oh my God. So um, I, was, I, was, I was walking behind my house I live in the Northeast, uh, outside of Boston, and it was uh, winter of 2017. And I walked by this pond, you know, this totally frozen pond. And I saw at the edge of the pond, there were three juvenile painted turtles. They were frozen mid-stroke, like, you know, and their eyes were open. And I thought, they don't look alive, but they don't look dead. So I so I ran home. I was like Googling, you know, what, what can freeze? I mean, not go into a torpor, but what can freeze? And thaw out and, and be alive. And it turns out there are lots of creatures that can do that. There are I mean, certain alligators can do that, right? Certain crocodiles can do it. Uh, frogs, wood frogs can do it, and so on. So now they possess a certain cryoprotein that we do not possess. We can't freeze ourselves. 
Um, as far as we know. As far as we know, we can right. freeze a zygote, um, which, you know, an embryo, it's around 120 right. cells. We do have that technology. In any case, long story short, yeah. Um, I just thought, I don't know, I just pictured a girl in a glacier and she was running and I just saw her foot from the side and um, I thought, what is she running from? She's running from something and what's her story? And I had to know, um, you know, I've always, I love, I, lo I guess I, I try to write books that I wish existed. Yeah. Um, but as far as I know, do not yet exist. Um, I think we all do that, right? We have yeah. some idea that, you know, I wish someone else would write it, right? <laughs> Which sure would be a lot easier, but, um, <laughs> but, right? but then we get to write it and then we have to write it and that whole thing. But um, so I guess I, I liked this idea because I love science. I love languages. Um, I love books that you read them and they just go along the edge of what's real and what maybe isn't but could be. So I think that that um, there's a lot of elements of the, in this book that do do that, yeah. um, that 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 sort of walk that line. And um, again, I just love to create what I would love to read. Yeah. Um, and I t and I tend to have that. I mean, you know, you have to sort of buy it in the and when you read this book, you have to sort of at least for the duration. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of go along with it. Well, not what you said in a, I read a Q and A and you talked about you'd read Frankenstein. Yeah. Talk about that for just a second. Sure. sure. Real, wrong question. Yeah, no, sure. Real, real quick, oh, so the Frankenstein, um, I just love the concept of Frankenstein. I don't know, just sort of the whole story of Frankenstein just breaks my heart, you know? Um, but there's a scene at, uh, I was, a, I was a painter, so I have a lot of visual stuff in my mind. Um, but in a 1931 black and white film, and it's the end of the film, and he's been, you know, hunted, and he's bloody, and he's pissed, and he's sad, and um, he's just this blacky, blocky, black silhouette, and he's disappearing into this blizzard. It's actually Mont Blanc, and I just that that just has stayed with me and I uh, for like 30 years yeah. that image you know and and, and um, you know there's no Frankenstein in this book um, but just just that feeling I just love yeah. that, that that sort of eerie feeling I mean you read Frankenstein you you're but you buy it you're in someone made mm -hmm. a person with body parts and they're alive yeah, that's you know you're like what oh so tell me more Right. <laughs> right, right. Well, then what happened? You know, yeah, and the little girl Sigrid is so not Frankenstein. Right, she's He's so just as just okay. as yeah. yeah. She's not Frankenstein. Don't anyone be scared of that? No, she's just. <laughs> no, yeah. I love it, but like Frankenstein, like your book, you you just kind of have to believe that it could happen. Yeah, like it, it, yeah. that's that's kind of the hook for people to bring them in. But I want right. to get away from that just a little bit. We want to leave the snakes. And the electric <laughs> eels and the Fran Frankenstein and the cracking ice aside. But you yeah. did, you've done stand-up comedy and written um, sketch comedy as well. How yeah. do those skills translate into your writing fiction? Well, I'm not funny anymore, so that sucks. But um, yeah, so, I could argue with you. Um, but. 
I well, you know, I don't have the pressure to be funny, so that's yeah. worth it. But um, yeah. so stand-up comedy taught me a lot. I mean, you have to be on time with new stuff that, and it's brutal. It's brutal. Like publishing is brutal. You know, we have to, you know, we get reviews, we get, I mean, it's, you want to learn about rejection? Do stand-up comedy. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, it, and, it, and, you know, but it was instant publication. You know, I was able to right away oh, right. just parse a joke, parse an idea. Um, and it, re but it really taught me discipline. And, and, you know, you don't really understand how much material is in five minutes. Yeah. That's a lot oh. of jokes. I mean, the American public is trained when they when we're going to watch comedy to laugh every 19 seconds. Huh. You know, it's boom, boom, boom. Well, the traditional comedy things are changing. Um, but so you have to, and, and another thing that you, I guess I learned was, you know, we're constantly have to be aware as authors, who is our audience? Who is our audience? Um, that said, we can be crippled by that as well. It's like, well, they won't like it if I do this. You know, it's, 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 it's a double-edged sword. You know, we, we sort of don't we need to know who we're running for. At the same time, we have to set our minds free. And that's, that's part of the mental gymnastics. I don't know about you, but that's what I start out in my writing studio. I need an hour just to like calm down, you know, just be like, oh, I'm here, you know? It's like I, I had an hour today to write. I'm like, that's such BS. I mean, by the time I stop shaking, you know, I'll have to, you know, it, it, it's just like, cause you gotta push the world away and everything, right? Right, ladies right. and gentlemen? Yes. So, Definitely. I don't know if that answered your question. But. Yeah, I did. I think no, you yes. talked a lot about, about a lot about timing and and timing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, and yeah. also like you know, editing down, like get yeah. rid of the words you don't need, and what right. is and its rhythm and its music. It's yeah. the music. Like you, I could tell the same joke, just changing a few words around or changing my tone of voice, and you would laugh or not laugh depending on that. Yeah, that's so, interesting. Yeah. That's true. Okay, let's switch over to, we know you teach writing, mm -hmm. and I would love it if you would share, uh, I found, actually Meg found and shared with me, um, <laughs> something that you said that you tell your writing students about there being no shame in not writing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, I have three really quick ones for you. Okay. We love First it. First of all, I mean, there's so much pressure in this world, right? There's so much pressure in this world to be productive and this is an american concept to produce 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 but then, but my, my quick tip is you have to live your life where do you think it comes from this these stories they come from you know american concept. holding holding a, a friend's hand or or you know being with a dying relative or going to the party and getting too drunk or doing something yeah. stupid i mean you know you just live your life um another quick yeah. thing is I think the word success is really damaging. Uh, I think that we have an understanding of what success is. And if I had bought into it 35 years ago, when my books kept getting rejected, I would have given up. So let your, be nice to yourself, love yourself, be kind to yourself, forgive yourself. You know, um, my, you know, what's success for you? Maybe it's you entered a contest and you made the deadline. Or maybe you learned how to write dialogue a little bit better today. Or maybe you understood who a character really was or something like that. 
And the third thing is never give up. It's persistence and learning. So, you know, don't say, don't just tell yourself you have nothing to learn and you're fabulous. Well, I'm sure you are, but <laughs> all, all have something to learn Yeah, all the time. I mean, every time I write a book, I have no idea how to write a book, even though I've done it 10 times. So um, persistence and learning. Yeah. Oh, that, that oh, is a great, wonderful. that is a great way for us to segue into bye-bye. But <laughs> here, <laughs> here, I'm just going to keep talking, so. <laughs> well, if only we could. We That's love right. talking to you tonight and having you share your wisdom. And um, so wonderful to have you tonight. So everybody, uh, if you have not uh, gotten Girl in Ice, this is a perfect time to get it. It's set in Greenland. You'll love it. Thank you. It's been an honor to be with you guys. Thanks so Thanks much for, for having being me. here, Erica. Thanks for being here. It's awesome. Bye. Thanks, Erica. I know. we. I mean, there's so much these ladies have to talk to us yeah. about. We hate to leave it. But we've got a lot of stuff going on. And we have some housekeeping announcements. And we want to make sure you stick around because we have a great afterwards. That's what we're calling our after show now. I uh, who made that week. up. I don't know. <laughs> I love it. Some slacker. It. In just a few minutes, we're going to welcome Karen Cleveland to preview her forthcoming domestic thriller, The New Neighbor. Well, just a quick reminder of our Writer's Block podcast. We'll always post links under announcements each time a new one drops. A new episode launches every Friday. On the last episode, the wonderful Meg and I got to talk with comedian, actor, and author Michael Ian Black about his book, which is just out in paperback, A Better Man, a mostly serious letter to my son for the Father's Day episode. If you have not listened to this one yet, it's it's just compelling. It's um, it's funny. It's smart. It's just, I, it was, oh gosh, one of the best experiences ever. But also, on top of that, this Friday, I'm talking with Kate White, who is just an amazing writer, but she's also the former editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan Magazine, and there might be a few little secrets dropped. Love it. Ooh, I can't wait to hear that one. All right. So we know that many of you out there have been participating in our very first Friends and Fiction Reading Challenge, organized by our friend Anissa Armstrong. So this month for June, we're encouraging you to read a book from one of the book clubs. And next month for July, if you're looking ahead, we'll be encouraging you to read a classic book. And if you're looking for a way to keep track of these books and your other reading, we would love to recommend our beautiful reading journal available in the Friends and Fiction merch store at Oxford Exchange and the pages are not dated. You fill in the dates yourself so you can start anytime. It's not like you're miss, you know, it's not like starting late means you've missed half the year. You just start when you start. Um, and it's a great, great reading journal. And we're not grading you. Uh, I am. I mean, speak for yourself. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm collecting I all yeah. the assignments. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> of course. Kristen Judgy McJudge. Yeah. Kristen and I will be That's on the me. border of France. Okay. Judging we'll be judging in the mountains. Yeah. Ron is going to beat everybody and run off to Balboa. Okay. That's right. In the meantime, the Friends and Fiction Official Book Club, which is different than Fable, which I think we've explained, we are having a blast. They are having a blast. If you're not there, well, you're just missing out. I had so much fun meeting with the group Monday night, and you can still watch our discussion about the homewreckers on the book club page <laughs> the group which is a separate facebook page and is run by our friends lisa harrison and brenda gardner better known as pb and j 
now more than 10, 12,000 strong. They choose a book each month and they have happy hours with our writer's block friend, Ron, Ron Block. That and guy. Horrible. <laughs> <laughs> they keep everybody in the loop about suggested reads and upcoming releases. And up next, they're going to be discussing Book Lovers by Emily Henry on July 18th. All right. Now, finally, you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We're live there every week, just like we are in Facebook. And if you subscribe to our YouTube channel, which we hope you will, you won't miss a thing. Be sure to come back next week, same time, same place, as we welcome Ellen Hildebrand with her newest, The Na Hotel Nantucket, which, by the way, just debuted on the New York Times list at Ooh. number one. Yeah. Number one. Go, girl. And um, we're going to have Jamie Gran Brenner with her newest, Guilt, and Robin Carr will join us for afterwards. That's a great lineup. I think so. Yeah. Well, speaking of subscribing, um, make sure you're signed up for the Friends in Fiction newsletter. We send a new issue every Wednesday, and we always include exclusive Q&As with our guests. This week's um, Q&As with Julie Clark and Erica Forensic were really good. They were particularly good. And, um, I watched too. Yeah, they definitely cover lots of info that we don't get to on the show. So definitely sign up for the newsletter. Um, all back issues are available on the Friends and Fiction website. So check those out and make sure you're signed up. Yes, definitely. And make sure to stay for the afterwards show. I love saying that. Yeah. <laughs> Tonight with our own Kristen Harmel's younger sister, author Karen Cleveland. We'll see you in 30 seconds. Well, welcome everyone to Afterwards. I mean, how could it get any better? Wow, wow. <laughs> it was great. They were. Was, yeah. Well, she lost me at snakes. I, have something I to say. know. That's I'm when so I kind of went, oh. <laughs> oh, I can't, oh, I can't stand them. But I felt, you know, um, that's one of the fun things about this show. You hear of the story behind the story. Yeah. And um, the authors, I think, are so generous with talking to us about what was going through their head when they were writing Absolutely. the book. And we've got more great stuff to come. Okay. Let is not, we're not going to waste another second. We want to get to Karen Cleveland. I mean, I don't think we should call her Kristen's little sister. She is Karen Cleveland, right? Correct. <laughs> she That's also right. does happen to be my sister. Though. I know that. But I mean, okay. She has a great last name. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, Karen is a former CIA analyst and the New York Times bestselling author of several novels, including Need to Know, Keep You Close, and You Can Run. They're all three word She's... titles, I've noticed. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. She, be <laughs> she began her career in the CIA working on Russia, and she later moved into the CIA's counterterrorism center, where she focused on Pakistan and Syria. Karen wrote briefs for the U.S. president and other senior policymakers, worked closely with an FBI joint terrorism task force, and earned more than a dozen exceptional performance awards while working for the CIA. Karen, I'm scared again. I know. <laughs> it's a terrifying night, isn't it? And I talked about stealing money from people. Oh, you're on the list now. I'm on the list. Yeah, you're on the blacklist, Rod. Okay. <laughs> Karen's debut novel, Need to Know, was an international bestseller and has been published in more than 30 international markets. Film rights were sold to Universal Pictures with Charlize Theron attached to produce and star. Nice. 
Karen spent her childhood in Florida and graduated from the vastly superior Southern University of the University of Florida. Um, she went on to earn master's degrees from Harvard and Trinity College Dublin, where she studied as a Fulbright scholar. Karen now lives in North Carolina with her husband and three children, who also happen to be my niece and nephews. Alan, could you bring Karen on? Hey, Karen. Hi, Karen. Hi. First of all, we need some we need some deep dive on Kristen's childhood crimes. Karen, can you share? <laughs> I mean, did she like steal your clothes? Did she spy on you? Anything good? <laughs> no. um, I, mean, I, have been, I, I can keep a secret. So um, you know, we'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> wow, these black um, sisters are really a uh -huh. thing. I know, I know. <laughs> okay, Karen, could you talk to us a little bit about the new neighbor, which will be out next month? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you, you so much for having me back here. Um, so the new neighbor is about a woman, Beth, and a neighborhood full of secrets. Um, Beth is going through a lot of changes in her life. Um, she's becoming an empty nester. She's selling the home where she raised her kids. Her marriage is crumbling. And professionally, too, she's going through a lot of changes. She is a CIA analyst, and she's just been removed from the case that has long been hers, uh, tracking an Iranian intelligence agent known as The Neighbor. Um, so the last piece of information she had on this case was sort of a cryptic message saying the neighbor has found a new cul-de-sac. And as Beth is sort of struggling to deal with all these changes in her life, uh, she develops kind of a fascination with the perfect new family that's moving into her old house. And in particular, the woman in the family who she sees as sort of a younger version of herself and someone who's stepping into her life, into her neighborhood on her cul-de-sac and, um, uh, you know, just basically stepping into this life she used to have. And Beth really can't stop watching this woman. And she sort of convinces herself that this woman has something to do with her old case at work. And the question is, is it is it paranoia or, you know, maybe are there more secrets on this cul-de-sac than she knew about? Oh, such a great premise. All right. It is a great premise. So, Karen, there's a question we've been asking lately. You've told us what the book is about, but what is the book really about? I'd say it's really about secrets and lies and um, how well do you know the people around you, not just your neighbors, but really how well do you know anybody close to you? And I think also this idea that the grass isn't always greener and sometimes you don't really appreciate what you have until maybe it's gone. Ooh, I love that. Nice. Intriguing. Nice. Okay. So um, I happen to know this because, um, you know, I'm related to you, but I know you moved within the last couple of years. Uh, did that have anything to do with how you came up with the idea for this book? Was your own move uh, related to that at all? And also, it do was. you live on a, on a street where there are like criminals and spies? And, you know, on every corner. Every corner. <laughs> um, it, it was related. We moved in mid-2020. 
And for the record, I would not recommend moving at the beginning of a global pandemic. It's a fun experience. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so we moved at this time. Um, we had also been sort of confined to our neighborhood for months at this time, like most of us due to COVID. And so we were, we were confined to our neighborhood. We were spending a lot of our time researching other neighborhoods because we were preparing to move. So it sort of seemed fitting to write a book that was centered around a neighborhood. And there were, I guess, a couple of things related to our actual move that did sort of serve as inspiration for the book. Um, one, you know, I actually didn't see our new house until the day we closed, which I know <laughs> sounds crazy. But uh, again, this wow. was, you know, spring 2020. We didn't feel comfortable flying at the time. We didn't feel comfortable with hotels. We had a, a baby who hated her car and screamed bloody murder whenever she was in it. So house hunting was really difficult. Um, and, you know, I just remember thinking, what do these new neighbors think about this family that came in and put in an offer on a site? You know, they, they must have a lot of questions about us. <laughs> and, and then there was something else that happened kind of right after we moved in. I remember my kids were out in the cul-de-sac riding their bikes and a neighbor came out and he stood and watched them for a little while. And he said to me, you know, my kids were about that age when we moved in. And now the, um, and you know, it, it seems like yesterday and now the youngest is off to college and you could just sort of see the emotion when he said it. Wow. And he put his hand on the market a few later and he moved and it just sort of stuck with me because I think that's such a, a normal thing really to kind of move into a neighborhood, raise your kids and then move out again, downsize, whatever. But you can imagine that there's a lot of emotion in that. You're sort of letting go of a lot. And it just made me think, what if there's a character who, um, you know, has even more change going on in her life and has a hard time dealing with it. And you could see how somebody could sort of become very interested in or maybe even a little obsessed with kind of the family that is kind of taking their taking taking your place and kind of living that life that you lived, you know? Um, so I, and then just, you know, what if that neighborhood is right outside Langley? And what if all of the neighbors have some tie to the CIA? You could see how there might be sort of um, secrets galore there. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I do too. Wow. So um, I'm curious about it from a little bit different angle, Karen. Um, you write a lot about shifting alliances and spies that might be like right under your nose and not necessarily being able to trust the people that we're supposed to trust. Um, is that something that um, you were influenced by with your work in the CIA? I think so. You know, I, I think it was something that you sort of learn there and you sort of absorb working there. I, I don't think um, I really had a hard time trusting people before I started working at the CIA. Yeah, I would say I'm less trusting now. Um, right. And, you, you know, it is something you kind of learn. And I think... You know, if I had to point to an example, there's there's sort of a, a lesson, I guess you would say, that I, it sort of sticks in mind because I think it made me laugh. And I heard it, you know, a few different times, at least while I was there. And it was usually directed at people heading overseas and usually men heading overseas. And uh, <laughs> it, it was sort of people being told, you know, if you're in a bar somewhere and there's a really a, attractive woman who is paying a lot of attention to you, 
you know, ask yourself the question, if you were back in a bar in the United States, would this person be paying attention to you? Just because you've gone overseas doesn't mean you're any more attractive or, <laughs> or you know, anything like that. So, and it always sort of made me laugh, but I, I think it's, it, it just does sort of speak to the mindset that you're taught, which is that you, you can't really ever fully trust anybody and you have to think what other, um, you know, intentions people could have. Right. So did you have to amplify some of the things that you learned in the CIA when you switched to writing fiction? It, did I have to what? I'm sorry. Amplify, amplify the, the paranoia and the, and the mistrust. Yeah, I think so. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's sort of easy to do in a way because, um, you know, I, I think it's something that I kind of maybe absorbed in my own my, my own life and everything. Um, you know, when I met my husband, I, I was working at the CIA and, uh, you know, I, I did kind of think to myself, is he um, is he really a good guy or is he maybe not who he says he is? And that was sort of the inspiration for my first book, Need to Know. So I think that there is kind of a lot about uh, what you pick up there that you can kind of use and um, fictionally. Yep, that makes yeah, sense. Makes sense. I'm curious how some of your colleagues that you stayed in touch with um, mm -hmm. feel about your work since you so directly address the CIA. And um, has any of the feedback you've gotten from them been surprising? Oh, good. Um, nobody has said anything bad about my writing to my face, at least. <laughs> 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 um, no, I think that I think that people find the novels fun, and um, they're definitely not sort of heavy spy thrillers. You know, this one in particular, I think, really is kind of domestic suspense with the little splash of uh, of the CIA. So, you know, I, I hope that they are fun reads for for ex CIA and um, non ex CIA alike. I guess. <laughs> Do you think you'd ever write a domestic thriller that didn't involve the intelligence world? Or, or do you feel like that'll always be a, a at least a, a certain part of what you write? No, I guess that's not something I've really considered. I, I like what I'm writing, and I think um, who was it on the afterwards last week? Kate Quinn, who was talking about kind of finding a um, unique story in a crowded genre, sort of. And you know, I feel like there's a lot of domestic suspense out there. There are a lot of books about neighborhoods and neighbors and I think having a little bit of a stay angle in there is something that kind of helps me come up with unique ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely can see that. Um, you know, we're watching um, the remake of the Ipcris Files right now, um, and it's like, ooh, I'm really into this. Um, yeah. Okay, I, I have a question I was going to ask you, but first of all, I have to know. Have you assembled a dossier on Kristen? And is there, anything <laughs> there? is there anything of interest in there that we should know about? We keep trying. <laughs> and where can we buy it? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I she, she she's perfect. She's honestly perfect. She really is. There, there is oh, no all those trips to Disney World. There's got to be something we need. <laughs> There really, there really isn't. Like, honestly, this girl is prom queen and valedictorian. Like, who is prom queen and valedictorian? She's, like, always just been perfect. 
one. <laughs> okay, we're not going to get too much into her perfection because it's making me gag. But, um, <laughs> okay. So, now you have three children, and I'm assuming they're not spies, but... <laughs> And I know they're young. We love to ask um, our guests about writing tips. And of course, with three young children, and I know how Kristen carves out time, she drugs her son. That's another story. Yeah. <laughs> You're not supposed to tell my sister. Come on. <laughs> she's going to tell my mom. She's perfect. Yeah. Thanks for ruining it, Kathy. <laughs> how, do you, how do you make time to do the creative work that you need to do and the research work? Um, uh, you know, I, I would say not very well all the time, not very well lately. Um, it, I mean, it's, it's difficult to, to find the time. And I feel like I kind of tend to work in spurts. So there will be times when I'm maybe not carving out as much time as I should and the ideas aren't coming as easily. And there will be times when, you know, I do find more time and ideas are coming more easily. So I guess I feel like it kind of uh, tends to work out in the end. Um, so I try not to stress about it, but um, I guess when I do stress about it, I don't sleep. And then there's a whole bunch of uninterrupted hours of writing time <laughs> <laughs> that works too. <laughs> are you like the rest of us when you don't sleep? Are the stories sort of spinning in your head? Yeah, yeah, um, I think so. And, you know, that is actually something I do if I can't sleep. Sometimes I do get up and write. Um, and sometimes if I have trouble falling asleep, I also try to, like, plan out next chapters until I fall asleep. So, Instead of counting sheep, you plot chapters. We do. <laughs> is that weird? And that, no, that's no, how you no, write a book. That's how we, that's how we do right. it. <laughs> I, mean, I think we all carve out. I think we all carve out those pockets of time whenever and wherever they occur. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Karen, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Yes, yes. Now I'm going to be checking everybody in my neighborhood. I'm super. <laughs> I know. <laughs> do, do you know one of, one of my neighbors just texted me as we were on this? I just think it's a sign. I think they're watching. Yeah. I mean, oh, like well, not I watching, not, not watching on the internet, but like watching. So now I'm paranoid too. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Look for the cameras. Look for the cameras. <laughs> and tell us, tell us when the new neighbor is in stores. Yes, uh, July twenty sixth. Excellent. Perfect. We can't wait to read it, and we would urge everybody out there, uh, as we've already said, then stress many times. The first week of a book's life is the most important week. So. Buy her book, damn it! And um, <laughs> thank you guys so much for being with us tonight. Thank you so much for having Hi. me. I appreciate it. Yes, yes. Great to see you. Good night. Good night. Good night. Everybody. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.